Well, I do invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5 as we continue our study through this very interesting book. It's all about God fulfilling his promises of the land to his people that he's called to himself, uh, promises made to Abraham and passed along through the generations. And, and uh, the first part of Joshua, that we're coming to the end of the first section, which is them entering the land, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll be talking about the beginnings of the conquering of the land. And then, of course, they'll be dividing the land in later chapters, and then finally, how they can stay in the land through their, through their, their faithfulness to the covenant that God has made with them. But here, we find them in the land... Preparing to take the land. Joshua 5. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children, whom he raised up in their place, that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us this morning. Well, Nina Simone, uh, this song popped into my head as I was preparing Nina Simone's 1965 Uh, standard feeling good states it's a new dawn it's a new day it's a new life for me and I'm feeling good well chapter 5 of Joshua marks a new dawn a new day a new life for God's people it's an entirely 
new chapter, a new era for these people, something they had never experienced before. All their lives they had been wandering around in the desert without a home. They were children of slaves whose parents had died in the desert due to their unfaithfulness to the Lord. Many of the surrounding peoples thought, well, their God took them out to the desert to kill them. And even some of the Israelites themselves expressed that thought. But now, as the Lord says in verse 9, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Now the reproach, that word reproach means a stigma or disgrace or shame that rested on Israel from the the time of their departure from Egypt. They were of no account to the people of the world. They were insignificant wanderers living off of manna in the desert. But now, here in chapter 5, all that has changed. They are living off the land that the Lord is giving them for an inheritance. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. It's a new life for them. And despite the pain of circumcision, they're feeling good. Well, the book of Hebrews speaks of the promised land in these terms. Hebrews 11 Abraham, by faith, went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, the promise that's being fulfilled here in in the book of Joshua. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham just wasn't content with that land of Canaan. He was looking forward to something more. The writer of Hebrews goes on. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, a city not in the land of Canaan, but an eternal city whose designer and builder is God. The new Jerusalem that we talk about and read about in the book of Revelation. Well, like the Israelites, Christians today are strangers and exiles on the earth. This world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. The world hates us as Jesus said it would. We desire a better country, a heavenly one, and indeed God has prepared for us a city. How can we enter that city? How can we enter that promised land? That's the important question. And there are three things that happen here in chapter 5. That tell us, that give us the answer to that question. How can we enter that eternal promised land? These three things that happen here are circumcision, and then Passover celebrated, and then Joshua's encounter with the commander of the army of the Lord. We want to look at these three events in this chapter and draw three things from it. And the three things that we're going to see is, in order to enter that holy land, that promised land, that eternal city. First, we need a covenant relationship with the Lord. 
And secondly, we need encouragement along the way. And then finally, we need to follow the leader. Follow the leader. Well, first we need this covenant relationship with the Lord. And the first thing that they did here, once they crossed the Jordan River, uh, thankfully everybody was frightened to death of them because they were sitting ducks, especially after they performed the ritual of circumcision on all their uh, fighting men. They were in no shape to battle. But because of the fear that had overcome the people of Jericho and Ai and those other towns, they were safe and secure there on the plains of Jericho. They were circumcised. God instituted circumcision back in Genesis 17 with Abraham. It's a sign of the covenant relationship between God and his people. God had made promises to Abraham of descendants and land. And then he did that in Genesis 12. He made a covenant with him in Genesis 15. And now he's given the covenant sign in Genesis 17 where he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you, Abraham, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And then he goes on to say, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So in Hebrew, the word for making a covenant is actually to cut a covenant, to cut a covenant. In Genesis 15, when God makes a covenant with Abram, you know, he, he causes Abraham to fall asleep. Abraham has cut some animals in half and placed them side by side, and the smoking pot and flaming torch pass between the pieces, and God swears to Abraham his promises that he will be his God and that Abraham and his descendants, whom he did not have yet, would be his people, and that God would provide him with land. And it marks this, this sign of circumcision uh, was cut off to save the people, the whole person, from being cut off from God, and consequently to consecrate the family produced from that individual. And uncircumcised males, as we read, are cut off from God's covenant from God's people and God's promises. So in circumcision, God is marking these people as mine. They belong to me. I will be their God and they will be my people. These people belong to the Lord. And circumcision is a sign of that relationship. Now, everybody that had left Egypt was circumcised. But all the people that were born along the way, this group here that's entering the promised land, they had not been circumcised. They, the first generation, had failed to keep the covenant. Not only had they failed because they disobeyed God and grumbled against him and God swore that they would not enter into the promised land, but they didn't even do the basics of circumcising their own children. So they were very 
unfaithful. So this generation was left without God's mark on them. And really, we, we must understand that not only is the mark important, but the heart is even more important. It's great that they all receive this mark of the covenant, but more importantly is what's going on in their hearts. All the people that left Egypt had God's covenant sign. They were circumcised, but their hearts were far from God. And that's why Moses in Deuteronomy 10 says to this generation, the second generation, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So it's not enough just to have the outward sign. They needed to have an inward reality of that relationship with God, that covenant relationship. They needed to have their hearts bound to the Lord. That first generation did not have that. They had the outward sign. Jeremiah 4.4 says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And Paul says in Romans 2, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. See, that first generation, all circumcised outwardly, but not inwardly. Their hearts were far from God, so much so that they didn't even circumcise their own children. Now, in the New Testament era, circumcision has been replaced by baptism. Paul calls uh, baptism the circumcision of Christ in Colossians 2. And like circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism is an outward sign that we place upon our children and on those who profess faith when they, they come, to the, come to faith in adult, as adults and weren't uh, baptized. It's a mark that they belong to the Lord. God is saying, you're mine. I will be your God and you will be my people. But if there's no heart baptism, if you will, if there's no circumcision of the heart, as Paul talks about and as Moses talked about, then it's just an outward sign with no true meaning. And that's the question. If we want to be those who go on into the promised land, the eternal city, we have to have an inward reality of that covenant relationship with the Lord. We've got to know God. He knows us. We've got to know him. Has your heart been circumcised? Does your heart belong to the Lord? Are you married to the Lord? That's the closest thing we have in, in our lives as a, uh, that's a covenant. We make, a, we make vows to one another when we get married, when a husband and wife get married and we're bound to one another and we're one flesh. And that's a picture of the relationship Christ has with his people, right? Ephesians 5. It's an inward reality. It's a love relationship. It's binding yourself to the Lord and the Lord being bound to you. And that's what we need. We need a, a, a re, an inward reality of that covenant relationship with the Lord. Do you know the Lord? Do you walk with the Lord? And what a blessing it is to know that you belong to the Lord. Just think about the context of this in Joshua's day. How reassuring it would have been for those people 
to finally have this mark on them, this, this circumcision, that they belong to the Lord. He's their God and they are his people. And he is fulfilling the promises that he made to their forefathers. What a great day this would have been in their lives, that they belonged to God and he was theirs and, and they were his. Heidelberg Catechism, number, question number one, belongs, uh, starts like this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is this, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And what a reassurance that is, to know that you belong, body and soul, in life and death, to a faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Does that describe you today? Do you know that you belong to the Lord? Do you know that he's got you in his hands? That's the first thing we need. If we want to go to that eternal city, to the promised land, we've got to know the Lord. We also, second of all, we need encouragement along the way. Once they were circumcised, the folks celebrated the Passover meal. Now, the Passover was instituted, of course, in Exodus 12, right before the Israelites left Egypt, before God rescued them from bondage in Egypt and slavery in Egypt. And, of course, it was the ceremony where they had a lamb and they ate unleavened bread and, and uh, they uh, ate the lamb and put the blood on the doorposts of their house so that the angel of death would, would not bring judgment upon them. And God delivered them out of Egypt. And this was a memorial worship celebration to remember God's salvation, God's deliverance. And here they are in Joshua 5, celebrating and remembering how they had once been in bondage in Egypt. And God instituted the Passover. He rescued them. They left they went through the Red Sea, which was miraculously parted. Of course, then the trouble came once they got into the wilderness and wandered around. But now, here in Joshua, they have passed again through the waters of the Jordan River, this time miraculously. And now they're celebrating the Passover as they enter into that land that was promised to them. So their salvation is coming to fruition here in Joshua chapter 5. And they're remembering this. They're looking back to, to, to what God had done for them and pulled them out of a dire situation where they were being killed and enslaved and burdened beyond belief. And now these promises are being fulfilled as they enter this land flowing with milk and honey. There, were, there was produce, there was places for their flocks to, to graze, and it was a, a wonderful, blessed place to be. And they're enjoying the fruit of the land even as they begin. And they're celebrating this, God's salvation. 
It was important. It was a reminder to them that God is committed to them. As they remembered, you know what? God saved me from this. God saved me from bondage. God saved me from the wilderness. God has, is, is bringing us into the promised land. Remembering this and giving thanks to this, to, for this. A wonderful uh, grace of God and promises fulfilled. God's commitment to them. To be reminded that God loves them and cares for them. And that's what we need along the way. As we journey through this life to the next, to the promised land, we must have encouragement along the way. And God has provided us that through his church, through his people, through the Lord's Supper, which is uh, the New Testament fulfillment of the Passover meal. We don't have to shed a lamb's blood because the blood of Christ has been shed once for all for our sins, for our salvation. And when we do celebrate the Lord's Supper, not only do we look back to the cross, we remember his broken body and his shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins, but we also are looking forward to that day when we will sit at his feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we are encouraged. And and that meal, when we fence the table, we call it fencing the table, when we say, you know, you need to be uh, a believer in the Lord in good standing in a a Bible-believing church to come to the Lord's table. Uh, That fence is is there because it is a table for God's people. Not just for anybody, but for God's people. And it assures us that we belong to him. When you celebrate Thanksgiving here in a few weeks, you're going to go to your family's house probably. Some will. Many will. You gather with the people you know and love and that you belong with. Friends. Relations. And it's the same thing at the Lord's table. We gather there in this assurance that we belong to Him. And we need to hear God's Word. We need, we need to be in fellowship with God's people. These are all encouragements along the way to, to, to make us remember God loves us and is committed to us. Because questioning God's love is the surest way to become discouraged. Now we went through COVID and the quarantine and thankfully we're, seems like we're coming out of that and hopefully that will, will continue to trend in the right direction as far as that concerned. But one thing it's done is make people more isolated, especially during the quarantine time. People were uh, forced to stay home and, and some afraid to go out and having to take care of themselves and be careful and, uh, I'm, th- I'm thankful that I think everybody in our church has come back to church. That's not true of every church. Some people are content to stay at home, and I think that's a dreadful mistake because you need the encouragement of not only just hearing the word preached on your video screen of whatever TV or computer you're looking at, but you need to be in fellowship with other believers in their presence where we can talk to one another, encourage one another. And we see here the people of God on the plains of Jericho, being encouraged, being reminded that God is for them and God is committed to them and God is fulfilling his promises to them. And we need to hear that as well. So that's the second thing, encouragement along the way. And then finally, we need to follow the leader. This is a very interesting uh, last few verses here of of chapter 5. Joshua is there in Jericho or near Jericho, 
and he sees a, a, a warrior, a man standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And, and Joshua goes up to him like a good leader should, and he's testing the loyalty of this warrior. And he doesn't really know who he's speaking to. And he says, uh, are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you for us or against us? And the answer is no. <laughs> the answer is Wrong question. Wrong question. Of course, this one is for him and for them. But the bigger question is, is Joshua on his side? Are we on this one's side? Because this is, as he says, as he identifies himself, no, verse 14, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, now I have come. Isn't that wonderful? And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Well, this is none other than the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Uh, he's identified as a man there with a drawn sword. But also he commands worship, and only God should be worshipped. The angel of the Lord appears throughout the Old Testament in, in, in numerous places. In fact, Moses told him, Exodus 23, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. For he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. And then in 33, the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 33, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So this is the angel of the Lord. In fact, when you look at the book of Hebrews, as we did here recently, the very first part... Uh, of the book of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is greater than the angels. Why does the writer of Hebrews start there? Why does he have to prove that Jesus is greater than the angels? It's because of this Old Testament theme of the angel of the Lord. Jesus is the greatest. He is this angel of the Lord that's leading them into the promised land. He is the, he's the ultimate one. He's the one who is going to have dominion over all things. And here's Joshua running up to him saying, are you for us or against us? And then he realizes who he is and he falls before him. We're taken not to the, to the nativity scene of this appearance of Jesus. We're not taken to Jesus as the teacher. Uh, we're, we're not taken even to the cross uh, the suffering servant, we're taken all the way to the book of Revelation, where it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. 
The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Joshua is standing before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he asks him, are you for us or against us? <laughs> well, he's obviously for Joshua and Joshua's people. But, is it, but it's a lesson for us. You know, we are often wondering in the circumstances of our lives when we find difficulty in life. We say, God, what are you doing? Are you, are you on my side or not? Uh, are you for me? Uh, or why have you forgotten me? Why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this to happen? We're, we're often worried about whether God, whether or not God is for us or is he for our adversaries, it seems like sometimes. Well, instead of questioning the Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we should, like Joshua, just fall on our face and worship him and say, what does my Lord say to his servant? Reportedly, when a friend assured Abraham Lincoln that uh, God is on your side, President Lincoln, he replied, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. God is always right. God is always good. Sometimes we question that, but God is always good and right. And whatever he ordains in our lives is right and good. So, we should just say, Lord, in this trial that I'm going through, in this cancer, in this looking for a job, looking for a relationship, in this miserable state that I'm in, God, what, what, would, you, what would you have me do? What would you say to your servant? Instead of just saying, are you for me or not? He's for you. If you're one of those who has a covenant relationship with the Lord, he is for you. He is on your side. That's not a question. You belong to the Lord. There's a great hymn. We're not going to sing it. But here's the words. Whatever my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he doth. And follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore to him I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet am I not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him I leave, leave it all. 
Yes, there are dark times on this pilgrimage to the heavenly city. But God is with us. The King of kings and Lord of lords is leading us there. And we must follow him. If we want to get there, we've got to be led there. We can't get there on our own. We've got to follow him there. That's what Jesus is calling Joshua to do as he leads them into battle, as he leads them into the promised land that he's giving them. The same is true for Christians. You have to follow Jesus to get there. There's a new dawn coming, a new day, an eternal life for God's people, and an eternity of feeling good. Do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with him? Are you being encouraged in that relationship? And are you walking by faith moment by moment in Jesus? All you have to do is call on him, and he will answer and save you. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, again, your word speaks to us of these wonderful eternal things. And Lord, we lift our eyes away from this transient life, temporal life, from our difficulties. And Lord, we look to you. I pray for all those who are going through difficult circumstances today and that you would know, that they would know that you are with them if they belong to you, Lord, and that though the way is dark and difficult, you're, you're caring, you love, and you are holding on to them. And Lord, we pray for grace for the journey and help and strength. And Lord, we pray that we would all turn our eyes to Jesus, the commander of the Lord's army, the one who is faithful and true. The word of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. May we ever follow him and serve him and walk with him. And thank you, Lord, for being with us. And Lord, if there are those who don't know you today, pray that you would work in their hearts to call upon you. To enter into that covenant relationship with you and to walk with you and to know you. Pray that they would know that joy as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.